mammals have been giving birth, as far as we know, for about 63 million years. So that's how long human birth has evolved for. And, you know, for 99.999% of that time, as my anthropology lecture, lecturer emphasized, you know, we've given, we've lived in the wild. It's only the last 10,000 years of that huge time that we've lived in settled villages and, you know, and farmed and things like that. So, you know, birth is designed to work in the context of the wild. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. This is episode 51, and I'm your host, Amber Magnolia Hill, today sharing my interview with Sarah Buckley. I'm really excited to talk about birth again, the reaction to my interview with Emily Saldea, uh, number 38, was through the roof truly 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 um and as I spoke about in that interview birth is so so close to my heart and I always envisioned it being part of this podcast and as I tell Sarah um her work made a huge impact on me when I was pregnant with my first 13 years ago and it's just an honor to be able to bring her work to my audience now so thank you so much for listening um let's do a little listener spotlight first this is an itunes review from botany of bean a wealth of wisdom i have been listening to the medicine stories podcast from the first episode please pardon that it has taken this long to review the wisdom shared in this space spans a vast array of subjects and yet all woven together by a common thread. Each episode gets to the heart of the true human experience. I am so grateful, Amber, for all that you have gathered together in this space, especially for your episode on immunity with Scylla Whatcott. This episode was deeply healing for past challenging conversations about immunity. I feel an inner power with which to move forward. Thank you. So that's episode 30, and um, it's it's relevant for parents and anyone on the parenting path. So mention that here. I chose that review to talk about because I think, you know, birth, um, sleep, which I'm going to talk about after this interview. I recorded a special outro, immunity and vaccines. It's all super complex tons of gray space, not a lot of black and white thinking, so many different experiences. So um, I just like to really hold that space, as you probably know, on this podcast, especially when it comes to these very important parenting um, experiences. So yes, at the end of the interview, I recorded an extra um, recording of myself, an outro where I talk about my sleep journey, especially with Nixie, my little one. A number of you have followed my sleep journey with her and sleep and co-sleeping comes up at the end of this interview with Sarah today. So I realized when I was re-listening to it, like, oh, I should update people, um, anyone who might be interested in what's going on with our sleep situation now and but not put it in the intro because not everyone's going to be interested so at the end of the interview if you want to hear about where we're at for sleep and kind of just what my overall sleep philosophy with children is um yeah a couple resources then check that out there at the end of this i am just 
so excited to be talking about the primal ancestral hormonal physiology of childbirth today. Definitely touched on it in that episode um, 48 with Emily. And so some of the things that Dr. Sarah Buckley and I talk about today are, yeah, the exquisitely designed ancestral slash mammalian hormonal blueprint of labor. And, um, you know, she breaks it down. We definitely get some, some depth into the science there and creating optimal conditions for birthing and for bonding. I love that this conversation and Sarah's work focuses not just on birthing, but on bonding afterward and on, um, you know, raising the child and what happens after the birth. Um, how feeling unsafe, even at a subconscious and limbic system level, can disrupt the flow of birth and that is cascade of hormones that are meant to unfold in a certain way. The irony of how we treat animals in labor versus how we treat human women in labor. The ecstatic, altered state of mind we enter into during labor and how we really don't uh, prepare women for the fact that they are going to just be as I say in this interview, like a different creature when they're laboring and how beautiful and wonderful that is. Um, The role of vocalization in labor. And then for after the birth, we talk about cord clamping, uh, this idea of no hatting, no padding, and no chatting. And then sleep and close sleeping. And a lot more. I didn't just read off everything we talk about. Those are just some of the things So I really super highly recommend Sarah's book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. And so I am so, so grateful to her for offering 10 copies of the ebook version of the full book for the Patreon supporters of this podcast. Um, I thought maybe it was like a little mini version of, of her book, her wonderful book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, but it is... 341 pages, I believe. It's the full book. So if you're a patron of the show at the $2 a month level, first of all, I love you. Second of all, you will be able to um, enter a giveaway and 10 people will win, which is super exciting. I love that 10 people will be getting something instead of just one. So that's going to be at patreon.com slash medicine stories. I usually leave these giveaways open for about a month after the podcast comes out so that listening stragglers have a chance to enter and I'll put the exact date in the post up there. Um, I will also, of course, have a link to the physical copy of the book in the show notes. I read it twice when I was pregnant the last time and just appreciated it so much. Just appreciate her perspective so, so much. In the show notes there, I'm also going to be linking to her online, it's it's a guide, it's like a little ebook too, yeah, report PDF on the hormonal physiology of childbearing. So this goes like really, really deep into what we just touch on here and the primal hormonal unfolding that is meant to happen in human beings when we give birth. I just think this is so important. And as I tell her at the beginning of the interview, when I found this, this essay, this piece, this work online, when I was pregnant with my first, 
it changed my life. It completely changed my life, changed the way I was approaching my upcoming birth and just instilled in me such a trust in the process. I so deeply trust birth and women's bodies and the intelligence of these little creatures who are coming through as well, the like innate biological, physical intelligence of birth. So I think we're done. I hope you enjoyed this interview. It's very meaningful for me. Please share it with the pregnant people you know in your life and go ahead and stick with it until the very end if you would like a little bit on infant sleep. Okay, so Sarah Buckley is a New Zealand trained GP uh, with training in GP obstetrics. She is the author of the international best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, and the scientific report, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, published with Childbirth Connection in 2015. Sarah is also mother to four children, all gently born and raised, now happy and healthy in their teens and 20s. Sarah's work supports parents to be well-informed and to listen to their hearts and instincts and take their rightful place as the real experts in their bodies, babies, and families. Amen. Sarah is currently combining mothering with her work as a writer and lecturer on pregnancy, birth, and parenting, and is also a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Her website is sarahbuckley.com. Hell yeah, I'm here to empower individuals and especially to empower parents and families. And I'm so grateful to people like Dr. Sarah Buckley for leading the way. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Thank you, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here from down under in Australia. <laughs> so far away in time and space. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been so deeply impacted by your work ever since I was pregnant with my first in 2005. And I would love to hear the story of what called you to birth. And I love asking people, was there anything in your childhood that hinted at what you would do as an adult? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, to ponder those things. I actually was born into a, a kind of um, medical birthy kind of family. My grandfather, my father's father, was actually a country GP, we call it family physician in this small town in New Zealand. And he, there's a famous story in my family about him riding out on horseback to attend a woman giving birth in the bush and not coming back for two days. Um, and he was very actually famed for his skills with these um particular forceps called Keelan's rotation forceps and this was before the cesarean days so you know he would have saved a lot of people's lives with that and he, he, the forceps that he actually had were were still in the hospital when I worked there like 30 years later or 50 wow. years later actually yeah so that was my my grandfather who actually died before I was born and then my father trained as a uh, trained as an obstetrician he went to England from New Zealand in the 50s and did his obstetric training and then came back and worked as a 
like his father as a um, as a GP, as a family physician, but also attended women in birth. And for a while there, he was the only obstetrician covering a very large area. So he um, he yeah, and he had a really good. My dad, you know, he was old school. He actually trained in the UK in the fifties um, when there was a lot of home birth over there. So he had a very kind of low intervention, kind of relaxed attitude to birth. And um, yeah, and he was you know the the one on one carer. You could say you know his, his clients obviously when patients obviously. He went into hospital, um, but you know he had a had a great philosophy of birth as well. Wow! And so, yeah, how did you get pulled into the birth world? Um, I think well, I was always kind of interested, even before I had children myself, as to go along to hear, you know, people speak. You know, um, Elizabeth uh, Noble, I heard Sheila Kitzinger, Michelle O'Dont people like that when they were visiting Australia, which is where I lived at that time and um, when I was working as a family physician. And then um, actually I was fortunate to choose a wonderful man, um, Nicholas, whose sister is a home birth midwife in New Zealand and recently retired actually. She worked for decades. And um, so when we had our first baby, we and we also had um, the good fortune to um, support a couple of friends having their babies at home. And by that time, We'd both done hospital kind of GP obstetrics, which is caring for healthy, low-risk women. And kind of we looked at that and we looked at the experiences our friends had at home and we thought, wow, the home birth looks better <laughs> to us. And then, of course, there was Sue saying, yes, it's a great choice. So, you know, when when I got pregnant with my first baby, it was kind of, we, of course, we were going to have a home birth. We'd actually chosen our midwife by then. So it kind of came naturally. And then I had such good experiences with each of my babies. And because, you know, we'd done our obstetric training in hospital, I could see well this is what happened at home and this is what probably would have happened in hospital and I ended up with a much better experience better quality of care I mean my midwifery care was way ahead of anything I'd ever seen an obstetrician give or women get in hospital so we were kind of sold on it after that and then so obviously we had our other three children four children all together all born at home so the foundation of your work is uncovering the mammalian deeply human hormonal blueprint of birth and I'm curious what what interested you in that aspect of it well, yeah, so what interested me, so going back to that first experience of having a first baby at home, so we were living in a kind of central, um, small cottage in, in a working class suburb in Melbourne, we're previously working class, and our neighbour had three children, and um, when we got, when I got pregnant with Emma, she said, oh, well, I'll lend you the bassinet, the crib kind of thing, and you know, and so we set up this room with the crib in it, and thought, yes, that's where we'll put the baby when the baby comes, but you know, I had this incredible experience, beautiful, sweet, oceanic birth, as I call it with Emma. You can read it in my book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, who she's 28 now. Um, but it was such a, a beautiful experience. And um, once she was born, I, I didn't want her further than an arm's length away from me. Like my instincts just really kicked in. And it was very obvious to me that something had shifted in my brain from what I thought about parenting before the birth and what I thought about parenting after the birth. And, you know, uh, what, what that was kind of what I was curious about. What was it that had caused my brain to shift so much? And that's kind of what got me interested. But also, especially after my four, fourth baby was born, um, such an ecstatic experience. Like I remember after she was born, I, I felt like I'd won, you know, the lotto, this huge lottery twice because I had this incredible experience and I had the baby and it was like almost too much for me to believe that though I could have these two incredible things happen at the same time. And, and, and I, you know, when I look now from the 
the knowledge that I have, I'd say that my reward and pleasure centers were maximally activated through that experience. And so that fed into it too. And that's really why I started writing about ecstatic birth. And um, also want to honor the the people that have supported me and mentored me in that, like Michelle O'Donnell is one of them, but um, a beautiful American midwife who died in 2005 called Janine Pavati Baker. And that was where I first heard the term ecstatic birth. And she about that and I thought wow that's really true that's what I experienced and that's when I that was kind of the origins of my um kind of um most famous bit of writing called ecstatic birth nature's hormonal blueprint for labor which um if anyone is interested to hear kind of all the detail go to my website and subscribe to my um, newsletter list and you'll get a free copy of that well that I believe is what I found online back then and just completely It just made so much sense, you know, of course, of course, there's this primal ancient blueprint of how birth is meant to unfold in people. And of course, I don't want to do anything to disturb that. So go ahead, please, and just break that hormonal blueprint down for us. Don't be afraid to go too deep. I love going deep. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, as as we say, you know, it's mammalian. It's, you know, mammals have been giving birth as far as we know for about 63 million years. So that's how long human birth has evolved for. And, you know, for 99.999% of that time, as my anthropology lecturer emphasized, you know, we've given, we've lived in the wild. It's only the last 10,000 years of that huge time that we've lived in settled villages and, you know, and farmed and things like that. So, you know, birth is designed to work in the context of the wild where, um, you know, it's not, it's a bit different, you know, a laboring female of any species is very vulnerable. And so you could say that birth has evolved to be as efficient as possible, to be as safe as possible, and actually to be as pleasurable as possible, which is what I was talking about with the activation of the pleasure and reward centers. So, you know, the most critical thing for any female giving birth in the wild, and this is our hardwiring still, is that she feels private and safe and, as I say, unobserved in her birthing. You know, uh, if you've given birth yourself, you'll recognize that, you know, or, or, or supported a woman giving birth, that women in labor, in a, in a physiological and natural labor, kind of into this altered state of consciousness, which is kind of oxytocin, the hormone, kind of endorphins. And so women can seem to be in this kind of other world. Some people call it going to labor land, going to another planet. Apparently, one of the Native American tribes says that the laboring woman goes out to the stars to collect the soul of her baby and bring it back. So that's kind of what's happening. So women look to be in this altered state, but they're also very sharp. You know, something happens, someone says something, a noise happens, a smell, you know, and they're right onto it. They're very alert in that sense. And of course, this is what has to happen in the wild because you have to be alert to danger, strange smell, you know, something out of the corner of your eye, rustle in the bushes. All of those things could mean, you know, your death and your baby's death, you know, because it's a predator. So we are in this kind of unique state in labor and birth, as I describe it, where we're in this kind of altered state but we're also very alert so as I said the altered state is partly endorphins which are the body's natural painkillers you know we get high levels of them in our brain in labor and birth and help us to put to put us into this altered state but also oxytocin and that's really what I've been doing the most research about in the last few years as part of my PhD so you know oxytocin is 
most famous birth hormone and it's also very famous outside of labor and birth because it's a hormone of well-being, it's a tend and befriend hormone, it's a calm and connection hormone, it switches on the relaxation and growth process which is the parasympathetic nervous system and at the same time switches off the sympathetic, the fight or flight system. So what's happening in labor is we're getting high increasing as labor progresses more higher and higher levels of this hormone of love as it's called because of its powerful connection effects as well and that drives the 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 contractions of labor it's released in pulses from the brain from the pituitary gland goes to the uterus causes the rhythmic contractions of labor that then accelerate and accelerate and i'll talk a little bit about why they accelerate in a minute but the important thing here is also at the same time it's released from the brain it's released into the brain so we get these really high levels of oxytocin in the brain and it kind of spreads it's a very um it's a neuromodulating hormone it has connections right through the brain and it also as we understand it probably spreads locally as well so through neurons through brain cell connections but also you know it's so much of it's produced it kind of filters through the brain and then it has these powerful calming effects pain relieving effects but also switches on in all mammals the kind of instinctive mothering behavior so that you know as soon as the mother meets her baby for the first time she goes oh this is my baby kind of I know what to do with it but also, this is my baby and my baby is a source of pleasure and reward because as I mentioned, part of this hormonal blueprint is a massive activation of the pleasure and reward centers, which is what I experienced. Um, and, and many women are going to say, you know, you come out of it thinking, oh my God, that was so fantastic. I could do it again. Or, you know, you feel like you could move heaven and earth. You feel invincible. And of course, you need to be invincible to take care of your baby. So that's part of what I call mother nature's superb design as well. So it's oxytocin. Um, not just the, the physical things of labor, but also the psycho-emotional, the mental, the switching on of these instinctive maternal behaviors. And um, the these feed, the, the way that labor accelerates, you know, I say it's, it's like a snowball. It starts small and gets bigger and bigger because of these accelerating mechanisms, these in, in physiologically positive feedback loops. So oxytocin within the brain actually in labor and birth feeds back on itself to produce more oxytocin. Then we get these high central levels which do all the things I just described. But also, there's a positive feedback loop that happens in the body. So as these strong contractions push the baby lower, there's a feedback loop where the sensations from that, from the contracting uterus, feedback to the brain by a specific nerve pathway, and they increase oxytocin. So you get more oxytocin, stronger contractions, more sensations, more feedback to the brain, more oxytocin. It's actually, if you go to my blog, I've got a blog about epidurals because they impact this, but it's got a picture of the positive feedback loop. So that means that the levels of oxytocin in the brain increase, the levels of oxytocin in the body increase, labor gets bigger and bigger, you could say, the snowball gets bigger and bigger, and in the end, it becomes virtually unstoppable. So that's kind of the end of labor. And um, just going back to that evolutionary perspective, so, you know, if we do have that sense of danger, if we're not feeling private, safe, and unobserved, and by we, I'm talking about all mammals, including women here, then we release um, different hormones. We release stress hormones. We release adrenaline and noradrenaline. 
And that switch is, turns off labour in several ways. It probably reduces oxytocin as it does, does in other circumstances. It also can, might directly reduce the contractility of the uterus. And basically, it's designed that if there's danger in labour, that labour stops. Yeah, because we don't want to be <laughs> labouring in the face of danger. Like it's kind of difficult to respond to danger in labour. You can't run anywhere. Like you can't really fight. So the basically, the survival strategy is to slow or stop labour, giving the labouring female space to run away, fight or flight, find a safe place, her um, stress hormone, adrenaline, noadrenaline go down and then labor can start again. So stress, and we've seen this in laboring women actually, when their adrenaline levels are high in early labor, they actually have a slower labor and they have more signs of adverse fetal heart rate patterns, which is a sign of less blood and oxygen to the baby because um, as these um, fight or flight hormones kick in, not only do they slow or stop labor, but they also actually shift blood to the parts of the body that we need for fight or flight, which is not our uterus, which is our muscles, groups, everything like that, um, um, the heart, our lungs, etc. And in doing that, they take blood away from the uterus and baby. So there's a, a you know, there, there will be to some extent be a, a loss of blood and oxygen to the baby at that time of the fight or flight response. But then, as I said, it's designed as an acute, a short-term reaction. Then the, um, the, 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 the mother finds a safe place, the hormones go down and labor resumes. So that's, that's how it's designed to happen in labor. But there is another um, aspect of that, which is later in labor. We're talking about the snowball. When the snowball's so big, it's unstoppable. It doesn't really help to try and slow labor down once it's got to that stage. So there's another kind of reaction if a mother experiences danger and fight or flight in late labor. It can actually trigger the fast labor and birth at that stage through various hormonal mechanisms I won't go into. So, you know, some women may have experienced this as well, like sometimes moving to hospital and that kind of unfamiliarity and some kind of, you know, anxiety can actually make labor happen faster. So she gives birth just a minute she steps into the lift or something. So there's that kind of double effect of the fight or flight system in labor. But, you know, it's really all designed that labor is as safe as possible for mother and baby. The mother's in the safest possible circumstance. Um, it's as efficient as possible, so the oxytocin feedback loops that being labor happens as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible. I mean, it's kind of a compromise with that because we don't want too strong or too close together contractions because that can compromise blood and oxygen to the baby. So it's got to go at a nice pace for the mother and the baby. Um, and then the pleasure, you know, the, the act, that full-on activation of the mother's pleasure and reward system so that when she meets her baby for the first time, these things are fully activated. I say, I say it's like the best first date ever when <laughs> we meet our babies. It's a design that we kind of fall in love with our babies or any mammal, you know, that the the, the, the the mother sees the baby as a source of pleasure and that gets onto, you know, the rewarding and motivating those maternal behaviors. So if I understand correctly, if birth isn't allowed to unfold according to this mammalian blueprint, it can affect bonding right at the beginning. Well, there's a few things that can get in the way of it. So as I said, you know, stress and labor or the mother not feeling private, safe and unobserved can slow labor down and make it difficult to kind of get that snowball going. And it seems especially, as I said, early in labor, the mother's more vulnerable. But, you know, um, for the first time, mothers as well, these positive feedback loops haven't ever had a had a run before. So, you know, it can take longer. We know it tends to be slower and I think more easily kind of derailed for a first time mama. So, you know, one of 
the ways to counter that, of course, is to you know, stay at home and be in a private, safe and unobserved space until labour becomes that big, unstoppable snowball kind of thing. Um, so that's one thing. Um, in terms of, you know, there's interventions that can obviously impact these um, these hormonal systems and one one of the ones that I'll mention and again going back to that blog about epidurals you know that that positive feedback loop that I was talking about where the sensations of labour trigger the release of oxytocin in the brain so if we don't have any sensations then we abolish that positive feedback loop so we know from studies that when a woman has an epidural her oxytocin levels go down and down and down and she doesn't have that kind of fueling of labour and then we've created what I call a hormonal gap something's not there that should be there and then the mother's usually offered or you know almost certainly requires synthetic oxytocin to fill that hormonal gap and get labor going again so but the problem is um, that the synthetic oxytocin um, does certainly make a uterus contract but um, for kind of biochemical reasons the synthetic oxytocin doesn't cross back into the brain. Oxytocin naturally is released from the brain and within the brain at the same time. But when we give synthetic oxytocin, it only goes to the body. It doesn't pass back into the brain because of the blood-brain barrier. So the woman gets these stronger contractions and sure, that can make, you know, it can overcome the effect of the epidural, but it doesn't give her that brain oxytocin that helps with calm and connection, helps with natural pain reliefs, which is on instinctive mothering, activates the pleasure and reward centers. So there's a, there's a brain hormonal gap there as well with an epidural. And of course, with cesarean, you know, depending on when it is and, um, you know, if it's a pre-labor cesarean, that's obviously going to be massively impactful on all of these hormonal systems for the mother and actually for the baby as well. So that's when someone like has their cesarean scheduled and they haven't, their body and their baby's body haven't had a chance to start the hormonal cascade of labor going yet. Yes, exactly. And the thing is, what's very interesting is that we actually don't know what causes the physiological onset of labor in humans. Like we know in some other animals, but every animal has kind of subtle differences in the system. So it's kind of ironic that we're doing all these things to bypass the physiological onset of labor um, without actually knowing what, what causes it. And you can imagine how much research is invested in that to prevent preterm birth. So we don't, for a start, we don't know that. And I think a yeah, part of that, we don't really understand all the full, as, as I call them, pre-labor physiological changes that happen in the lead up to labor. You know, one thing we do know is that the laboring mother gets increases in her um, oxytocin receptors inside the uterus. Um, this is kind of like, I describe uh, the hormone, the oxytocin, like a key in the receptor, like the lock. So the oxytocin is released from the brain, goes down to the uterus, finds these little key locks and, 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 and joins onto these receptors on the outside of the cell wall, turns the key and sends a chemical message into the cell. So um, what that means is that if a woman's having a, an induction or a pre-labor cesarean, then she doesn't have that maximal sensitivity, that maximal number of oxytocin receptors. And it might not matter in a pre-labor cesarean because obviously she's not going through labor and birth, but it, it could impact her risk of blood bleeding after the birth. And also she hasn't had those um, full readiness for labor and birth, which we don't know for sure in women because we haven't sampled women's brains in the lead up to labor. But, you know, all these brain stuff gets switched on in animals as well. And we'd have to presume that, that that's um, the, the case for women as well. So it totally makes sense how these interventions, uh, Pitocin, epidural, C-section can get in the way of this hormonal cascade. 
Um, but it seems to me, even if a woman is laboring in the hospital and has none of those interventions, just the fact of being in a brightly lit room, naked in front of strangers coming in and out could also impact that. Yes, exactly. That's, um, you know, if she's not feeling private, safe and unobserved, then it's hard for her to have the full kind of unimpeded flow of her labor hormones. If she has some anxiety, if she doesn't feel safe and, and by safe, I don't mean just intellectually safe, like right. thinking that the hospital is a safe place to give birth. We're talking about the, the deeper layers of the brain, the limbic system, the animal brain, if you like, you know, and, and you know, it's like when you go into hospital and there's these strange smells and strange noises and strange people, as you say, when we're not designed to have strangers present at birth and you know we might kind of intellectually think oh I'm safe in hospital but the limbic system might have a different idea you know the limbic system goes mm -hmm. red alert this is not a safe place from this kind of animal brain perspective so that's the thing is we're bringing this you know um ancient mammalian hormonal blueprint into um, an environment that's not really designed, you know, to cater for our ancient mammalian hormonal blueprint. And, you know, if any of the listeners have been animal breeders or grown up on farms or horses or those kind of things, you know that, that, you know, you don't do that to animals if you want them to give birth successfully. You stand back, you let the, the labouring mother have her privacy and safety you don't interfere unless absolutely necessary so it's kind of ironic that we do that in women supposedly to help and it, you know it, it is well intentioned um, but we we wouldn't do that to animals and basically we have the same hormonal blueprint um, that's evolved over these 63 million years right I'm just thinking of that word unobserved there's no way to feel unobserved while giving birth in the hospital and yeah, and what women's instinctive, especially first time mamas, they know that in their in their limbic system and they'll find the smallest room, the toilet or the shower or, mm -hmm. you know, that's one of the beauties of water birth is that the mother can have her own space in that and can go deeply within. And of course, you know, if you are going to hospital to have a baby, um, as you say, that's part of the system, but you can protect yourself from that to some extent, you know, taking your own doula, take, having your own midwife to help you feel safe at that primal level. I mean, that's how what we've done for millions of years is have familiar supportive birth companions that's what most other animals do but also you know you can go inside yourself you can you know you can cut out the kind of visual things you can have an eye mask or bury your head in a pillow with familiar smells or wear earplugs or you know do hypnobirthing or something that puts you into that kind of internal state to help those hormones to go and to cut out the external um, um, environment just you know, as, as much as you can all of those things that are kind to the limbic system. Mm. I think that this is just so important. I, I don't think that first time pregnant mothers get the message that they are going to be in a completely different state of mind when they're in labor. Um, I just I just don't think that we think about that or that it's taught in childbirth classes that it's written about so much and books and on blogs and being um Ex expecting that I think could be very helpful just knowing and welcoming you know so let's go back to that word ecstasy as you write it's is it Greek in origin yes and and ek means outside and stasis means point or static thing so you take something that takes you outside your usual state and classically you know it's been used in a negative ways as positive ways so you can be in an ecstasy of pain they used to talk about saints being in these ecstasies of pain so you know it's a powerful psycho-emotional state that that has you in this ecstatic state and you know 
I think in labour, it's designed to take us out of our usual space. You know, it's designed to put us into this altered state of consciousness. And, you know, I think it's difficult when you're a first-time mama because, first of all, you presume that the system is going to look after you because generally healthcare systems do that. Um, but I think the thing to realise is you're going into an institution and institutions have their own way of running and you've got to fit into the institution. So institutions aren't designed to cater to individual needs. So if you want your own individual needs catered to, you need a system that's going to help you to do that, like taking your own caregiver, taking a doula, taking a midwife and uh, definitely take your partner, but you can't expect your partner to advocate for the institution because they're probably not going to understand how the institution runs. And it's, I don't think it's really a good, good role for the partner. If, you, if you're taking a partner, it's an even better reason to have a doula or a midwife. So someone to kind of liaise with the system and kind of know how to make the most out of the system. Like my friend... Um, my friend was insulin dependent diabetic and went to hospital and took a doula with her and the doula walks in and just opens the windows in the room like you probably wouldn't do that as a labouring mama but the doula you know she knew the system she knew what she could do to kind of make it make it the make it the mama's own space if you like so that's really important um, and yeah so that you know the, the kind of trust the kind of system the institutionalization but also as you say you know labor is an unknown it's a mystery we don't know what's going to happen no matter how many babies we've had we don't know what's going to happen and I think you know it's kind of it, it's it's a little scary I mean in every culture there's rituals to help women through that kind of initial fear and um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in labour and birth. And that's part of the mystery and magic of it, to be honest. Um, but that older state of consciousness is probably something we haven't experienced before. Maybe in the kind of ecstasies of, of sex, of sexual pleasure, we can get into that space. But, you know, that kind of prolong the many hours of, of labour and birth, that older state of consciousness is new, you know. And, and I think it's really, as you say, it's education, it's kind of, having a space that can cater for that and also your partner knowing that that could happen and you're not going to be the same person that you usually are and you know it's important you know you can be direct and say what you want and you know as women we are kind of socialized and, and also we have this hormone oxytocin that makes us kind of social socializing social wanting to please other people socially and you know in labor that doesn't really work we've got to be internal focused on what's happening for our body what's happening for our baby we've got to be in touch with our instincts we've got to go into this altered state so that we can have this hormonal blueprint unfold optimally it's just it's so primal and yeah that's sort of the point I was trying to get at is that we don't have practice for these altered states of consciousness it's not something we uphold as a culture we're not doing group ritual and ceremony from a young age like our ancestors did and so just yeah preparing women for the fact that they are going to be a different creature while they're in labor. Um, it just seems important to me, and I'm, I'm so glad you do this work. Mm. And so this is um, sh shedding some light for me on my two births. They were both at home. The first was um, a free birth. It was just me and my partner. And then my mother and my grandmother came at the end too, which was amazing. But it was mm. 17 hours long, and I did not feel physical pain once. Mm. And then with my second 10 years later, I had midwives and my partner and my best friend and my sister, and it was lovely. And I felt, you know, very safe and unobserved and free in both of the environments. But the second one was just four hours long. And the mm. pushing, my midwife said, was about 10 minutes. And it was so much more pain. I mean, I couldn't believe the pain, you know. 
I was like, oh, this is what people talk about with childbirth. So now I'm wondering if it's because the first one was so much longer and those hormones had time to build and build and cascade and cascade and block the pain. Um, I can't really comment on that, to be honest. Like women do have painless births and some women, most women don't. And I really don't know what the mechanisms for that. I mean, obviously something's happening in the brain, chemicals in the brain. But, you know, you could have a short painless birth. You could have a long painless birth. I don't really think. And I, But I think that the point that I want to make about that is, I mean, I think painless birth is a blessing if it happens. But I don't think we can kind of expect it. And I don't think, I think if we start to talk too much about and I'm not saying you in particular, but, you know, like some of the, one of the beginnings of the, you know, natural childbirth movement was around the work of a man called Grantley Dick Reed, mm-hmm. um, who was a, a medical doctor and he attended a woman giving birth at home. And she said to him, it wasn't meant to hurt doctor, was it? And so she obviously had a pain, pain-free birth. So I don't think, I think the important thing is that, you know, pain is, is usually a part of it. The stress and pain of labor is part of it. And if it's not, that's fantastic. But we shouldn't think anything's wrong. And we sh- I don't think the aim should be to have a pain-free birth. I think the aim is to accept whatever the process is for yourself at that time. So I can't really comment on, you know, why that one birth was pain-free and one birth was not. Um, I really don't know. And I've never seen any research on that. Mm, I guess I just um, have this idea that endorphins are pain blocking. Endorphins are powerfully pain blocking. Um, in fact, they're powerfully pain blocking and they have a very long um, duration of effect in the brain. I came across a study of a, a man that had intractable cancer pain and he happened to have a shunt in going into his brain and they gave him endorphins that had 21 hours of pain relief from that. So very, very powerful um, pain relief, but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to get a pain-free labor from it. And by the way, oxytocin feeds into that, probably by the same kind of opiate mechanism. You know, it kind of contributes to to pain relief and labor as well. So there is this kind of natural pain relief. But I think I think the thing is that is every woman, every labor is going to be different, exactly as you describe. Every woman's going to be different. And I think that um, the thing is to be in circum, you know, be in an environment that's going to support you no matter what your situation is. And exactly as you describe, even if labor is painful, if you're in your own familiar environment, if you've got people that you know and trust, you know, you can get through it. You know, you can, your body's designed to, as I say, transcend the stress and pain of labor. And, you know, the, the stress and pain of labor, I mean, it, it, it provokes not only endorphins but as part of that kind of chemical release in the brain you also get high levels of cortisol which is the stress hormone um, so people say you know people are kind of busy trying to make labor stress free but it's designed to ha- to be stressful and in fact one study they found that the more cortisol the m- mothers had at that moment of birth the more um, uh, attracted they were to their baby's smell and it takes me back to when I was 13 or 14, I used to read those romantic novels, you know, Mills and Boone they were, or even Jane Austen. And, and you know, when the couple, you know, there's often some stressful event that happens when the, the couple fall in love with each other, you know, um, and people, you know, sometimes, you know, being in a stressful event can make people fall in love. So, you know, cortisol is a part of that kind of bonding experience, like neurochemically. So, the labor is designed to have a certain amount of stress and pain for the mother to switch on those kind of bonding and the cortisol and the attraction to the baby sense, probably a whole lot of other things we don't know. But 
labor is also designed to be a stressful event for the baby and the stress of the stress of being born as it's been called is critical to the baby's transition so the stress of labor is part of the stress i should say in inverted commas is part of the process and you know in my hormonal physiology report we call it eustress e-u-s-t-r-e-s-s which is normal healthy physiological stress um, that's designed to switch on all these things but excessive stress like feeling, you know, not private, safe and unobserved, you know, like if you'd had that kind of labor and been to hospital, I'm sure it would have been much more difficult too. So, you know, there's kind of healthy stress and there's kind of not healthy stress. So we want to reduce the not healthy stress, but there's a certain level, you know, a certain level of stress that's just part of it. And, you know, I would say in that, you know, even though in that pain-free labor that you had, there was still stress, still physiological stress, your baby coming down the contraction. So, mm-hmm. you know, you would st- still have ha- had high levels of, of cortisol as well. So that's kind of, you know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm in agreement with you that pain-free is not the goal. And I was going to say too, even though it wasn't pain per se, it was still incredibly intense. Mm, mm, Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's an intense experience no matter how it is, you know, and I mean, um, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think the thing is, as I said, to have the the circumstances going to help you to deal with it. The people that aren't trying to take your pain away, you know, that are not trying to push painkillers on you because of their discomfort with it. So you want people Mm -hmm. that are familiar with the intensity of the circumstances of labor and birth, like a doula, like an experienced midwife. Um, And yeah, you want their freedom of expression. I mean, most women through historically and animals, you know, we use intrinsically, we use breath, we use sound, we use movement, you know, so you want to be in a situation where you can use those tools that you naturally have. You can move around to find the most comfortable position. You can use your breath. You can make sound if that helps you um, because sometimes that can be helpful too. Oh, I can't imagine going through labor without making the sounds that I made. It was Mm. such a energy moving mechanism that came from so deep within. There was no stopping it. Beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I I feel like I must mention too, since you mentioned this, that during that first labor, during one contraction, I had a really strong vision of my soul or spirit being projected out into the cosmos and like gathering my baby in and then, you know, bringing, bringing her back down onto earth. And, And I remember I read that thing that you talked about a few years later. I was like, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, so, so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You've done all this incredible work around birth, but then you also write and share a lot about what comes next and supporting the baby after birth and through young childhood. So let's um let's talk about cord clamping, if you would. Yeah, well the exciting thing about this, Amber, you know, when I started talking about, writing about, talking about cord clamping, um, back in the 1990s, actually, you know, the standard was baby comes out, cord clamps straight away. You know, the thinking was the baby gets too much blood if that's not the case, a whole lot of misconceptions about the physiology of it. And what's really exciting now when I do those same kind of talks is that, you know, almost all the guidelines now are saying don't clamp straight away, delayed cord clamping, at least it's an option if not the standard guidelines. So I think things have really changed. And again, you know, we've got to go back to what is our mammalian blueprint, like how do other mammals do it? You know, or as my friend Sarah Wickham said, if we were designed to clamp the cord, we'd be born with a cord clamp on our thigh. So, <laughs> so we're not designed to clamp the cord. You know, the, there's this um, 
incredible process that happens that they call the placental transfusion where after the baby's born, the baby's out, but the placenta's still in the mother's uterus. The mother's uterus starts to contract again, just like it did in labor. And every time it contracts, it squeezes the placenta and sends blood to the baby. And then in between contractions, some of the blood can actually come back from the baby to the placenta. There's kind of this to and fro um, that ends up sending, you could say, about 100 mils of the baby's own blood into the baby from the placenta. So the baby ends up like 100 grams heavier with this extra, in inverted commas, um, 100 mils of blood that the baby actually needs as a newborn because in the womb, if you think about it, the baby's not having to do that much for itself. Like all the nutrients are coming through the placenta, the wastes are being taken away, the baby's lungs aren't working, the baby's kidneys are not working that much, the baby's liver's not working to detoxify, the baby's not having to do any heat exchange, the mother's doing it for, for the baby. You might have noticed when you're pregnant, you're offloading heat for the baby. But as soon as the baby's born, they have to start doing those things for themselves. So the skin has to work as an organ of heat exchange, the baby has to make their own heat, the baby, the kidneys, the liver, the skin, the gut and the lungs, all those organs have to work. So in the womb, those non-functional organs don't have a lot of blood going to them. Once the baby's born and those organ systems start being functional, the vascular beds, as we call it, the little blood vessels and all of those organ systems open up and they need blood to work. So the baby needs this, in inverted commas, extra 100 mils of blood to fully perfuse, to fully supply blood to all those organ systems. So this is really important that the baby gets that placental transfusion. And, you know, some of the studies that have been done in those intervening years, the last um, more 20 years really, have shown that babies that get that, and, and some of these studies have actually done delayed cord clamping even just 30 seconds you know because there's a kind of bolus that comes through in the first um, few seconds or up to 30 seconds after birth especially if the baby takes a breath so that even delaying clamping by 30 seconds one of the long-term follow-up studies showed that the those children, the boys in particular, had better um, uh, development and intellectual development at age four because they got that extra blood, which is not just perfusing those newly functioning organ systems, as I say, but that 100 mils of blood has also got iron. It's got the equivalent of iron of 100 liters of breast milk. It's got these um, stem cells that everyone wants to get their hands on, but they're designed to, to migrate to the baby's bone and start forming blood-making cells. Um, it's got albumin. It's got extra protein that help the baby's lungs to clear. I mean, it's basically very precious at 100 mils. It's designed for the baby to get to optimize their long-term functioning. So, you know, the idea of clamping the cord early so no one gets the blood or doing cord blood banking with the cord blood, this 100 mils of blood goes somewhere else and with a remote chance that the baby might need it later. I mean, those things are, are not um, useful in, in terms of, you know, mammalian physiology or in terms of your baby, basically. Is this something where the longer we wait to cut the cord, the more benefit there is for the baby? Or is there, you know, pretty clear after this point, it's okay? Well, yeah, there's, there's, there's um, we, basically that, that the 100 mils of blood comes in quite quickly, you know, within the first three minutes. And after that, not much. But if the cord isn't clamped, there's still this to and fro that's possible, even after the cord stops pulsating. So, you know, I say, you know, well, what's our mammalian blueprint? Our mammalian blueprint is we don't do anything until the placenta comes out, you know, until the mother births the baby's placenta. Then we could do something. I mean, other mammals chew through the cord. But by that time, the cord actually physiologically closes. There's a cord closure. So if you cut the cord after that, you're not going to get – 
much bleeding at all. You know, apparently the cord clamp was invented when women started giving birth on the bed to spare the bed linen. So the bed linen didn't get any drops of blood on it. And then we've taken it to these extremes of early cord clamping. That's really not necessary. So I say full physiology is we don't do anything until the placenta comes out. Yeah. Um, in which case the baby and the placenta will have sort of figured out how much blood the baby needs because, you know, um, we all have a different blood volume, you know, when I'm, and when I'm doing a workshop, I say, look around, everybody's got a different blood volume and it depends on our body size, it depends on organs, it depends on our vascular system. So I think this kind of toing and froing that happens between the baby and the placenta is probably controlled in some way we don't understand. So the baby optimizes, the baby chooses, regulates their final blood volume and what they don't need gets left in the placenta, what they do need gets, gets given to the baby because in some of these studies, some babies took 50 mils, some babies took 100 50 mils so you know I think if we want the baby to really um, have the the ability to regulate their own blood volume as we're designed to do then I don't think uh, the, the full physiology is we don't do anything until the placenta comes out but you know if you want to do it beforehand I'd say three minutes um, the baby's got the maximum of it if that's really necessary you know if it's really d down to the wire then at least allow the baby to take a first breath and as I said some of these studies were done you know benefits to the baby from just 30 seconds of delayed cord clamping or but I don't like that term because that's presuming that cord clamping is the norm but 30 seconds after birth the cord gets clamped. Um, you recently on Facebook reposted an incredible story from a woman named Dr. Sharon Robinson and she posted a photo of her and a maybe 18, 20 year old boy and told the story of when she attended his home birth decades before and he came out not breathing and for 20 minutes, she was resuscitating and he was fine because he had the cord attached to the placenta in the mother's uterus the whole time and was getting all the oxygen he needed while she got his lungs working. Yes. And I think that's coming into, I think the American guidelines now say you can resuscitate with a cord intact. But of course, the issue with that is that when I was, you know, in hospitals, the, the resuscitation equipment is over on the wall. So you've got to cut the cord of the baby just for practical reasons to take it over to the resuscitation equipment. So nowadays, um, people are, uh, are figuring out how to bring the resuscitation equipment to the baby if needed. So the baby can be resuscitated with a cord intact. And I actually tell a similar story about a baby who, who didn't breathe for seven recorded minutes the baby actually had thick meconium and that baby again turned out to be totally healthy through to the teenage years because the very smart attending physician didn't cut the cord you know that 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 100 mils of blood is rich in oxygen you know it's a backup for the baby because you know in nature we don't do that we don't have suddenly one system stops and the other system starts we have a handover so there's this period of handover from oxygenating through the placenta to oxygenation through the lungs so that's I mean that's a beautiful story and it totally illustrates the the magic of this thing and you know and midwives talk about if you don't clamp the cord and the baby's you know slow to breathe the baby can actually self-resuscitate because you know there's a whole lot of things I could say but one of the things that that 100 mils do it's not just about what's in the blood it's also the fact that it's extra blood volume because the baby's total blood volume is 250 300 mils or so so that extra volume for the baby not only perfuses those organ systems but it actually helps the lungs to clear the fluid as well so the extra proteins extra fluid helps to clear the lung fluid and helps the baby to breathe so you know auto resuscitation I'm not saying don't resuscitate babies at all but you know you can know that you've got a good backup system 
system. And for example, people in low resource settings will not not only not um, clamp the cord, but sometimes they'll milk the cord and take that extra 15 mils or so that's actually in the cord um, to help the baby to recover. Mm, and this is also why babies who are born underwater can hang out underwater for a few minutes before being brought to the surface. I remember being so shocked when I first realized that you didn't have to immediately yank that baby up to the surface. Yeah, there is an ongoing, I'm not saying that I'd necessarily recommend that, but there certainly is an ongoing oxygen exchange that happens. And some people say, we don't know for sure because these things haven't really been studied, but some people say now the placenta usually starts to separate just as the baby comes out. So the the, the oxygen exchange through the placental membranes kind of stops. But some people say, well, maybe just the placenta sitting in the uterus, there could be some oxygen exchange happening. We don't really know. But we do know that there's this backup system that operates in some very effective way that lasts for, well, I, I used to say seven minutes, but I've probably got to say 20 minutes now. <laughs> you know, and it's really reassuring, isn't it, when you're a maternity care provider to know that there is that kind of handover and that there's more time than we've classically thought that we've had. Yeah. You also recently posted, and I'm just going to recommend people follow you on Facebook if they like what we're talking okay. about because yeah. you Do post Dr. interesting Sarah, things. Dr. Sarah Buckley, you've got to go to my professional page. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, the name of this article was No Hatting, Padding, or Chatting for the First Hour <laughs> After Birth. And this was all totally new to me. So can you break that down a little bit, please? Yeah, well, that that phrase, no hatting, no patting, no chatting, comes from um, a beautiful woman called Carla Hartley, and she ran a midwifery school called Ancient Art Midwifery Institute. And I think it's a beautiful, easy thing to remember because, you know, often we do stick hats on the baby straight away because we're worried about the heat loss. But in fact, you know, the babies, we were talking about the, the cortisol that makes the mum attracted to her baby's odours and the baby's head um, mm. emits a lot of sense. So it's designed that the mother imprints and learn to baby's odor and this um, the, it's very closely associated with the oxytocin system too so you know that you know when we smell our newborns we go oh that's so pleasurable mm. because we've got the activation of the pleasure and reward centers we've got the oxytocin and then we've got this beautiful smelling baby's head that's just at the right position for our nose so you know hatting is not required for the baby and the other side of that is that you know we've learned more and more about the magic of skin to skin and the way that the mother keeps the baby warm because again you know going back back to our um, our, um, our hormonal blueprint throughout evolution is that there weren't no hats. There was nothing to put the, on the baby. You know, the baby on the mother's body, skin to skin, is the most effective warming system possible. The mother, these peaks of oxytocin that the mother has um, at the moment she pushes her baby out, which actually increase even more in the first hour after birth. These peaks of oxytocin activate um a flushing mechanism, you might recognize this with sexual arousal, we get this kind of flush that goes up from the chest up even to the neck. And after birth, this natural flushing mechanism is actually a, we call vasodilation, the blood vessels on the chest wall are opening up and it literally pumps heat to the baby to keep the newborn baby warm. And we know that that's a much more effective way of newborn warming than anything else and putting clothes on the baby, then putting the baby in a, under, a, under a heat source, you know, the, the mother's skin to skin temperature of the baby baby's a bit warm, the mother's heat exchange reduces. If the baby's a bit cold, the mother's heat exchange heats up. So the baby doesn't need a hat to reduce heat loss because the mother's body is going to be the most effective warming mechanism. So that's no hatting. No patting, you know, the, the place for the baby to be is on the mother's chest. We don't pick up the baby. We don't pat the baby. The baby is coming into this um, 
well, you might call it from an anthropological point of view, the environment of evolutionary adaptation. You know, it's what the baby's designed. The baby is designed to be there you know, through these years of, of evolution. And when it's in that environment of being skin to skin on the mother's chest, all these newborn reflexes unfold such that the baby can step, the baby can wriggle, the baby can locate the mother's nipple by the sense of smell, the baby can find the nipple and latch on. And I mean, it's quite extraordinary that it's taken us, you know, to recent times to know that because of course every other mammalian baby can do that so and just taking the baby away for even you know a short period of time to weigh the baby or measure the baby or or um what do you say examine the baby as I was taught to do you know that that interferes with what the baby needs to do what the baby knows how to do which is to come onto the mother's body find the breast and self-attach you know and that's the best um initiation of breastfeeding that's possible I'll just share a story I was when I first I, te- I remember the first home birth I attended and I'd been you know um attending births in hospital and you know of course we take the baby away and we make sure they haven't got this congenital I mean it's all just very unlikely things but I wanted to take the baby and the mother said what are you doing with my baby <laughs> oh that's right the baby belongs to the mother mm. so it was very funny of course you know but that's what you kind of learn in hospital like you're responsible for the baby but mm. but yeah so so no patting and then no chatting you know I mean when I talk about this third stage of labor until the placenta's birthed I say the mother's you know from a hormonal state the mother's more in labor than she ever has been and very important not to disturb that time because you know if she gets um, cold if she gets scared if she feels disturbed and these adrenaline levels go up and they push her oxytocin down that puts her at risk of bleeding so really important that this is a private safe and unobserved time for the mother and the baby and of course when I say unobserved I don't mean unmonitored in any way like a an experienced birth attendant will keep, be keeping an eye on the mother and the baby because you know we want to make sure the baby's breathing make sure the mother isn't bleeding but we don't want to um, disturb her time you know at that this critical magical hour after birth when all these incredible things happen and I think you know as I say when I talk about this in my workshops you know the the after the baby's been born there's kind of all the drama of labor and the contractions and pushing the baby out and then that hour after birth it can look like not much is happening but it's actually the most critical time when these incredible changes are happening inside the baby for those reasons that we described the baby's not um not using the placenta for all those body functions and oxygenation the baby has to take over those things itself which involves a complex reorganization of the baby's circulatory system and it's the time the baby's most likely to be compromised and then for the mother she's had these nine months of getting used to being fully pregnant and then within a few minutes she's not pregnant anymore so again incredible complex changes happening for the mother they're going to reduce the chance of, of postpartum hemorrhage so you know that golden hour after birth as we say you know really important you know just as with the rest of labor that the mother feels private safe and unobserved and and also warm actually that she's kept warm at that time and just recalling my own you know home births this is when the doctor and the midwife that I had attending would retire to the next room and fill in the paperwork you know and they were there <laughs> if needed but you know I felt totally safe and private you know with my partner and my baby and sometimes my other children as well <laughs> maybe not so private and safe but you know I felt very comfortable like my oxytocin levels weren't impacted by the environment so really important. Wow, this is for the first time since my youngest was born almost three years ago. This is almost making me want to have another baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. It's the maximum activation of the pleasure and reward centers, Amber, isn't it? Or or as Janine Pavati Baker said, you know, women stop having babies just when they start getting good at it. She had six. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I love Janine. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Janine. Yeah. Uh, um so 
okay, if we birth in this mammalian way, we do the skin to skin and the breastfeeding and all this, and then we put our baby in a separate sleeping space from us. Um, that just it seems like a little bit of some cognitive dissonance there, you know, especially when we're talking about about being mammals. Bears don't put their babies in little cages at the back of the den, you know, elephants and whales and dogs. They all keep their babies right next to them when they're sleeping. How how did we get co-sleeping so wrong in our culture? Yeah, so I think there's a few reasons. I think one of them, looking historically, I mean, it's interesting, like even, you know, 200 years ago, the baby might not have slept with the parents, but the baby slept with someone like the wet nurse or the nanny or someone like that. Like babies generally didn't sleep alone. Or siblings um, or other families. Or siblings, yeah, 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 yeah. And other cultures, it's very uncommon for babies to sleep alone. I think some of it was the germ theory, you know, the idea that mm. you shouldn't breathe the germs of someone else. Um, we kind of over-applied that to babies who were kind of designed to have our germs. Um, but I think, you know, I think the the re the way that we, you know, the, the reason we have to have our babies with us, it's like I described with my own baby, you know, when these hormones kick in through physiological labor and birth, activation of the pleasure and reward centers, we're hormonally driven to keep our babies next to us. And of course we are because that's critical for survival. You know, imagine imagine one of our ancestors in, in the wild, you know, put the baby somewhere else to sleep. The baby wouldn't be there in the morning or even putting the baby down and turning around, the baby might not be there. So we've got this hard wiring to pick up our babies to hold our babies to especially if they cry we don't want to attract wild animals you know it's very much our mammalian instinct and our hormonal blueprint once those pleasure and reward centers are switched on the maternal behavior kicks in to keep our babies close and that's exactly what I experienced and, and when we do have our babies close when we sleep with our babies we have this whole process of what we call mutual regulation it's a bit like what I described with the skin to skin if the baby's cold the mother warms it up if the baby's warm the mother cools it down yeah so we have that that happens between a mother and the baby they're sleeping together we have the mother's steady breathing that regulates the baby's steady breathing the mother's heart rate actually the mother's heart pattern actually regulates the baby's heart pattern the baby's breastfeeding regulates the mother's fertility um you know, and then of course the baby, the baby's breastfeeding also regulates the mother's milk supply. So that breastfeeding in the night, as a co-sleeping baby will do, then helps the mother to make more prolactin, which produces more milk. So really, you know, it's a is um the beautiful um, anthropologist actually James McKenna, who's done a lot of research mm -hmm. on co-sleeping. He calls it breast sleeping. We're designed to breastfeed and sleep together. It's part of one system, really. And if we kind of start separating that out, then we can have difficulties with breastfeeding. Um, we can have to, you know, and and the other irony is, you know, often women are say you know, put the baby in another room so you sleep better, but actually sleeping with your baby gives you more sleep. You know, they've measured it and it's true, it gives you more sleep. And also the other brilliant thing about it is, you know, your baby just needs to stir and you wake up and you feed your baby and you both go back to sleep, whereas the baby's in another room, the baby has to work itself up to such a loud state of upset and crying to get your attention that it's going to be much harder for both of you to settle. So it's kind of not, it's not anthropological, it's not physiological. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. Um, but the other irony is, you know, people are told co-sleeping is so dangerous, which I completely disagree with. And again, I refer you to my book on my website. But also, you know, putting the baby in a separate room increases the baby's risk for SIDS for the reasons that I described. So even if you're not going to co-sleep with your baby, um, you know, put the baby in the same room. 
womb as you because your breathing sounds will help to regulate the baby. And then also you won't have that whole, the baby has to work itself up into a state to get your attention and you can bring the baby into bed with you to feed as well. And, you know, all babies are different. Um, do what works for your family. I'm not saying everybody 100% should co-sleep. I mean, some babies uh, don't really mind that much. My first baby was a very heavy sleeper and she didn't really notice that much. I mean, I loved, loved sleeping with her, but, you know, she was kind of flexible and some babies, you know, my, my youngest one, not only did she co-sleep, but I had to be facing her until she was, you know, three or four. Like I couldn't even turn over. She'd wake up if I turned the other way. So that's a very oxytocin, you know, skin to skin facing, heart facing, you know, ventral body, um, you know, so she, she needed all that stuff. And, you know, babies are different. Yeah, I remember learning, I think, from um, Dr. James McKenna, about about this possibility of um, of babies dying, and often it's called SIDS when they're not sleeping next to their mother. And what happens when they are sleeping next to the mother is, like you said, that entrainment. And he explained that often, and maybe you talk about this in your book too. It's been a few years since I've read it. Um, babies, because breathing is so new to them that when they get to like the bottom of a breath, they forget to inhale for a moment, and usually they pick it right back up again. But if they're laying right next to a parent or caregiver, then the parents' breathing reminds them to pick it up again every time. So it eliminates those chances for the baby's body to maybe forget how to breathe again. Yes, exactly, exactly. Entrainment, mutual regulation. And that's that's why the SIDS recommendation is that you have your baby in the room with you so that your breathing can entrain the baby as well. So, yeah. And I think the other thing about co-sleeping is it's really beautiful. It's really pleasurable. You're getting all that oxytocin, you know, skin to skin, even if not the skin to skin. I mean, it's so beautiful to wake up to your baby. Like I remember when, you know, my younger babies at number three and number four when daytimes are really busy with the kids and everything. And I just have these really sweet moments like in the middle of the night waking up just being with my baby and yeah so beautiful such a pleasure and you know and then the partner as well can be involved in that to wake up with a happy smiling baby I mean it's very you know and it's it's pleasure pleasurable and rewarding because it's designed to be because mother nature wants us to do that because that enhances survival of the baby survival of the species so it's all it's the same hormonal blueprint we're talking about really that ensures that the species survives you know if we'd coast if we hadn't coast back in evolutionary times we wouldn't be here because all the babies would be taken by predators in the night mm-hmm. yeah i experienced that so much with my little one right now and i think you know we're all super busy in these modern times and and when I wake up next to her in the morning, and just sleeping next to her all night, I'm like, we're just, we're reconnecting, you know, mm. even though I see her all day for, for most of the days, mm. I do have long periods of work and it's just, I love that reconnection time. Yeah, beautiful. My, my friend who was working full time as, as an obstetrician, actually, she slept with her baby and she called it reverse cycle parenting. <laughs> she spent all night with her baby, feeding her baby and then work in the day. So, yeah, yeah. exactly. The, intimacy, the intimate connection, yeah, fostering intimacy. Yeah. Yes, and um, like re-regulating, you know, reconnecting exactly. on that yeah. really basic level. Yeah. So, okay, Sarah, you have a lot of stuff out there. You've got your book, websites, you have, um, I believe you have resources for pregnant parents and resources for birth workers as well. So can you just sort of tell people where to find all your stuff? 
Uh, well, at the moment, I, I sometimes I've had, or previously I've had membership websites, but I'm kind of reworking that at the moment and concentrating more on the hormonal physiology. So make sure you go to my website and sign up to my newsletter and you'll find out when all of that's available. Um, I've got my, and get onto my newsletter because I publish that every two or three months. There's usually a blog that goes with that. I've got some really topical blogs. As I said, two on epidurals, one on induction of labor. Um, yeah, lots of good information there. I've got quite a few articles on my website as well. And of course, my book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering is available on all the Amazons plus through my website. And um, if you just want a quick fix, you can go to my website. I've actually got the, because I've done two editions of it, the 2005 edition, which has got a little bit more parenting things in it. So that's available as an ebook from my website as well. And I've got some videos of whole day workshops I've done. And I do do workshops um, around the world at different times. I'm actually doing one in North Carolina in uh, on the 19th of June, um, 2019. So yeah, keep an eye out, but make sure you're on my email list to get all that good information. And as you say, I post quite a lot of things on Facebook on my professional page, Dr. Sarah Buckley, and I love the discussions that we had. We had a great one actually. That the no hatting, no chatting, no patting was about the babe. This no, not that one. There was one about the smell of the baby. Yes, yes. Um, and that's an amazing. <laughs> you should go back and read that about people, um, birth attendants smelling the baby before they were born or smelling this I particular stage did. of labor. That was fascinating. Yes. No, I had that in my notes here. So yeah, you posted about, and then I, I saw all these comments from birth attendants who were saying it, not all of them, but many of them are like, oh yes, there's a different smell emitted mm. from the woman. And I know, mm. okay, now the baby's coming. Yeah, it's a different neurochemistry. And it's interesting, just going back to oxytocin, everything goes back to oxytocin. But there was a study actually they did in rats, but they've got two rats in a cage and they injected one into the brain with oxytocin, because remember, it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And this rat had the pain-relieving effects we talked about, but its untreated cage mate also had the pain-relieving effects. And they did a few um, permutations of that experiment and they found out that the oxytocin is transmitted from one individual to another in a pheromone kind of way through an mm -hmm. organ in the nose, a vomeronasal organ. So oxytocin at that time of birth reaches these extreme levels in the laboring mama. So everyone around gets this oxytocin surge, you know, and if, if those of you listening who are birth attendants know that. It's incredible pleasure and reward and ecstasy even just being present when the mother has those high levels of oxytocin. As I say, it's a love fest. Everybody falls in love, you know, the mother with the baby, the baby with the mother, the midwife with the mother, the parents, you know, like huge. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, oxytocin is related to the sense of smell as well. And I wonder if that's like a an acceleration of the oxytocin that because there's a big peak that happens with the birth because of these positive feedback loops. So that would be my hunch about it, but I really don't know. It hasn't been researched, but really interesting phenomenon and I think also you know really reminds us all the things that experienced birth attendants this long history of midwifery law you know l-o-r-e what we know from what other people know from our own experiences that hasn't really been included in the medical stuff but totally fascinating and as I say the magic and mystery of birth yes I thought that was so cool and just like you said it's just a part of this birth attendant lore that isn't going to be talked about in your obstetrics textbook. <laughs> yeah, I really recommend the, um, well, Sarah Wickham's website. She's beautiful. That, that's where that, um, that study came from or her comments on that. So sign up to that, but also midwifery today. 
um, a magazine that comes out of Oregon. It's a beautiful repository of midwifery law, just really stunning. So if you're interested in that side of it, sign up to their e-list as well. I I write for them sometimes. Oh, maybe that's how I found you way back then. (laughs) Mm. I used to read the magazine and go to the conferences and all that. Oh, beautiful, yeah. Well, thank you so, so much. It's a true honor and a pleasure speaking with someone who has made such a profound impact on my life. Well, thank you, Amber. It's certainly my pleasure and privilege to do that. And, you know, and thank you for passing it on. You know, like when we have these good experiences, we want every mother, baby, father and family to get, you know, the best possible start. And, yeah, for you, I forgot to mention my um, my report as well, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing. It's kind of slightly technical, but a lot of midwives get their clients to read the um, the executive summary. It's got some really nice summaries of everything that I've been saying. And, yeah, you know, the take home message is, you know, the best possible start is, you know, respecting and optimizing a hormonal physiology. And if there are inevitable hormonal gaps, you know, filling those in with skin to skin and breastfeeding. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Okay. Pleasure. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about sleep. One of the most challenging and confusing aspects of modern parenting, to be sure, uh, so much conflicting information and advice and almost all of us deal with sleep as a problem when we have little kids because it's hard um, our society are we don't we're like in the village like I talked about in episode 11 of this podcast which is still like one of the top two most listened to episodes that I still hear from people all the time so if you're a parent and haven't listened to that one you'd probably love it but We're lacking village support. Um, We're lacking models of childhood and early childhood. Most of us don't grow up seeing that as we would in a tribal living situation. So we are at a loss as to what to do. And in our modern society, we um, problematize sleep, which is legit. Like it's a problem when you're not getting enough sleep. So and, and you don't have community support then to like watch the kid while you can catch up on your sleep. Um, so I don't mean to delegitimize how hard it is because it's been a huge issue um, in our lives. So yeah, just want to talk about it because some of you have followed the sleep journey that I've been on with Nixie, who's now almost three. And so just to recap also for those who haven't, um, with my oldest daughter, Mycelia, who's almost 13 now, just totally co-slept from the beginning. It was fine. I don't remember it being much of a problem. I remember at 17 months, I think, night weaning. And that was a hard couple nights, but I was just done, done, done. I think we all get to that point where we're like, I'm dying. I'm done. Something has to change. And that's when a lot of people go like hardcore sleep training or cry it out. And I am going to talk about our sleep training. Um, experience with Nixie in a minute here so and then Mycelia when she was like three and a half we finally moved into a place where she could have her own bedroom and she was ready she did fine she loved sleeping on her own and so that was that um I guess I would say here too that in general my my approach to parenting is very ancestral um primal like rooted in being a mammal, as we talked about in this episode with with Sarah Buckley. So, you know, natural birth, breastfeeding, um, just 
plenty of sunshine and soil and being outdoors and naked time and lots of skin to skin and being together as much as possible, especially when they're super little. So uh, of course I co-slept with Nixie when she was born three years ago and didn't anticipate that it would be a problem. And then at about seven months old, I was just, I was at that breaking point. I, I, I've never felt like that before. Like I kept saying like, I'm going to murder someone if something doesn't change. I'm so out of my mind. I actually, at the peak of it, I went into the kitchen drawer and I got a knife out, not to murder someone, um, but to cut myself, which is something that I used to do in college and have not done since then. But I was so like out of my mind from the lack of sleep and then the like problems it was causing in my relationship that the only thing I could think to do to sort of let the pain out was to cut myself again. And I didn't do it. I put it back. But that was kind of my moment of like, okay, something has to change. So I had been very anti-sleep training up to that point. Um, and it's interesting to say that because like intellectually, I kind of still feel like I am like, I just really feel like babies are meant to be with their parents at night. And, um, and that, yeah, like I already said, sleep just is an issue and it's kind of something we have to deal with. I don't, I don't really know what I'm saying. It's still, it philosophically bothered me that I was interested in sleep training, but I was like, I think that's better than like hurting myself or maybe hurting others. So we did a really gentle sleep training through sleepsense.net. And man, I got so attacked online um, when I posted, okay, this is a little detour here. So there's actually a really great group called the Beyond Sleep Training Project on Facebook. If you want advice on sleep, if you definitely don't want to sleep train, yeah, so don't even fucking mention sleep training in this group because this is this is where I made my mistake. Um, okay, I'm actually going to come back to this because first I have to tell the whole story of Nixie's sleep evolution to get there. Um, so we did a gentle sleep training. One of the things people reacted to when I posted in that group was like, there's no such thing as gentle sleep training, but there is. There's totally co-sleeping and like sacrificing all yourself and your sleep for that ideal. And then there's cry it out on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is just leaving your child alone, not going in as they cry and scream and sometimes vomit on themselves and just total abandonment. And then in between, there's this whole spectrum and gentle sleep training lies somewhere in there. And so what we did, as I remember over two years ago now, is we stayed with her in the, either me or my husband, we took turns, um, stayed with her. And yeah, she cried because she was like, nurse me, what's going on? You always nurse me to sleep. Ah, what's happening? And just stayed and like stroked her and soothed her with our words. And, you know, we're present with her, but like, I'm not, I'm not nursing you at night anymore. You need to start sleeping on your own. And so it took, I think three nights of that each night, the amount of time it took to get her to sleep was less and less. Um, I think it maybe took a little longer to stop the middle of the night nursings. I remember being so engorged during that week. Um, because I was not nursing as much at night or maybe at all. I don't remember. It's crazy. Um, but, you know, within a week or two, she was going to sleep on her own and she wasn't nursing through the night. So it was a somewhat easy process for us. 
And I really like that sleepsense.net because it's daily videos for 14 days, I think. So she walks you through, okay, this is probably how it's going to go tonight. Usually the third night is like this. Usually the fifth night is like this. This is what you do if this happens. And it was really helpful. Uh, so that was amazing. And suddenly we were getting enough sleep and we were stoked. And at that point, I decided, well, let's try to put her in a crib, you know, she's, which I never thought I would do. You know, in this interview, I compare it to a cage, which it is. Um, but, you know, we found one and we got it and it just worked so well. She slept so good in that crib. And, and then I was sleeping so good in the bed and it was like a complete 180 for our family. And so from probably eight months is when we got the crib until two years old, things were great for sleep. I would nurse her at night uh, downstairs. Owen would take her upstairs, still awake, put her in the crib. She'd lay down, fall asleep on her own, sleep until the morning time. It was a dream come true. And then starting exactly two weeks before her second birthday, we went to put her down for a nap one day and she just bought it and naps were just as easy too. screamed and screamed and it took hours and I remember that was the first day we tried to have like um, help with our business so we had someone here helping us do bottling and stuff and we were just like we're so sorry this never happens oh my god you know we were just kind of out of our minds and it was like awkward trying to incorporate this new person into the business at the time and and then it happened again at bedtime and at the end of that day we were like whoa what a crazy day. Wow. Weird. You know, and then happened the next day at nap and bedtime, the next day at nap and bedtime. And I just remember that dawning realization, like, oh my God, this is the new thing. This isn't an aberration. This is what's happening now. And, you know, I always say about parenting, it's like two steps forward, one step back. Um, when everything you've got something figured out, <laughs> you don't. And we tend to get all maybe not self-righteous, but pretty confident when we figure something out, you know, we're talking to other parents we're like, oh yeah, well for us, it just worked this way. And like, it was great. We just did the sleep training thing with sleepsense.net and everything's been awesome. And then it changes. It just always changes. And so we tried really hard to stick to the routine and stick to the crib sleeping for like two or three weeks. And finally, I just had to give up and welcome her back into bed. Uh, because that's what she wanted. You know, I don't know what happened. Her brain woke up or as I talked about in the intro to episode 28, two weeks before she started resisting sleep, we had watched our dog get killed by a car in front of our house. And that might've had something to do with it too. I don't know why there would be that two week lag in her, in, in her like reacting to it in that way. But I think that might've had something to do with it. So even though I thought we had made all this progress, right, by getting her to sleep through the night and um, sleep in her separate sleeping space, like we just worship that idea in this culture, it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And we were all back to getting no sleep. And I could just tell like in her little soul that she needed that closeness with me and she wanted to be back in bed. Um, I've shared before that Owen sleeps in a different bed because he snores very loudly and I'm a very sensitive sleeper and actually so is Nixie which is why the crib was so great because we weren't constantly waking each other up turning over in the night um so she's been back in bed with me ever since it's been almost a year now that she's been in bed with me and I love it <laughs> I love it 
Um, even though I do have to be careful every time I want to turn over or get up to go to the bathroom, it's just, it's worth it for like the sweetness of having her be right there with me. And it just feels right. It just feels super natural, uh, to have her in bed with me. So it's been really sweet. And it's been, again, just quite the journey of back and forth and up and down and letting go of ideals and letting go of the idea of progress and, getting so much conflicting information and advice again. Um, and like, even right now we're kind of going through this thing with naps where she's, she will not nap on her own anymore. Like she won't nap in the bed, even if I'm there rubbing her, telling her story, singing, she's just like, Bing, nah, I'm awake. but the second we get her in the car or the stroller, she passes out. So we're like, okay, this is just like such mixed messages. You know, I've, I've read that like, if they're not falling asleep in the bed anymore, they're done. It's time to be done. But clearly she needs to sleep if she passes out within a minute of the motion happening. But obviously we don't want to be driving every day. And some days it's too hot to be in the stroller. So I was doing the thing again, where I'm just like desperately seeking advice online. And then which is like legit. And I'm sure I'll continue to do it. But I was just like, oh, I need to just check in with myself you know, and really observe what's going on with her and, and figure what I think is best. And actually when I'm observing and what I'm feeling is that she still needs to be taking these naps. So, okay. Willing to do a hot stroller ride or willing to drive around, even if it's a dumb thing to do, <laughs> we're using up gas and it's always scary having your kids in the car. We have this giant church nearby us with a giant parking lot that we can just loop around in and there's no one there. Um, on not Sundays. So it's actually a really safe place to do it. But so the Facebook post, okay. When we were going through this thing a year ago where she suddenly was just fighting every nap, every sleep, um, I posted in there like everything we had tried. And I was like, we even like, we let her cry it out once during that period, like didn't go in there. She was crying and crying in the crib. And, and it was me. I was just like, maybe, maybe she just needs to go through this once and then she'll go back to sleeping on her own. She'll go back to falling asleep when we want her to like, let's just see if this works. And it was fucking awful. It's the worst thing ever. And it didn't work. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I mentioned that we had done that in this post because so in the medicine stories, Facebook group, people are so kind and moms had left had posted things like this before. Like I'm, I'm having such a hard time with my kid and I even resorted to doing this and people hold them so gently and lovingly. And dude, I posted that in the beyond sleep training group, went and like ran errands and stuff, kind of forgot I had done it, checked it a few hours later and I had gotten torn apart by the people in this group, um, for admitting that we had cried it out once and for like, you know, do, do, considering anything other than just like whatever their ideal is of not sleep training. Um, so that was a real eye opener for me too, with everyone's just varied, strong opinions on this subject, you know, touched on um, vaccines and immunity very briefly in the intro with that review, but it's so the same for sleep. So yeah, I just wanted to, since Sarah and I talked about it in this episode, knowing that some of you know some of the things I've already shared and might be like wondering, wait, I know she did sleep training and she slept in a crib. So why did she just call it a cage? And, um, you know, I just want to say that it's like a super like vaccines and immunity, complex, nuanced, 
um, situation and everyone's situation is different when it comes to sleep. And there's no one right answer for everyone, except for perhaps deeply listening to your own intuition and instinct and deeply observing your child and seeing what it is that you think they need, which can be so hard to do with so much information advice. There's like a thousand sleep expert websites out there for kids. It's super overwhelming. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I just, again, like that, that Facebook group, the beyond sleep training project is cool. If you want that kind of advice for sure. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's such a blessing to be able to find like an online community that can really hold and support our parenting decisions, no matter if people disagree with them or not. So, you know, I advise you to seek that out too. And the Medicine Stories Facebook group is not in any way focused on parenting, but people do talk about what's been talked about on this podcast before. So since I am a mother and do talk about parenting, sometimes people do post there about those things. Um... Yeah, I think that's it. Just wanted to expand on that a little more. I do get people asking me questions about this and I know it's a hot topic. And um, if I really had to like sum up my beliefs about this, I would say absolutely sleep with your babies when they're babies. You know, I, I just can't imagine putting like my newborn or even my four month old in a separate sleeping space there. We are mammals, you know, it's there's my little baby bear. It's meant to sleep with me in my bed. And then as they get a little older, you know, like oh, just seven months is when I started to lose my mind. So that's when we made the change and that didn't happen with my oldest. So she stayed in bed with me and don't be afraid to experiment or to quote backslide, you know, to, to undo the quote progress you've made. Like it's all cyclical and circular. It's not a straightforward arrow by any means, this parenting journey. All the sympathy and love for all the parents out there dealing with sleep shit. It is so hard. And yeah, you're doing your best and you're doing great. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, Which Healing Herb is Your Spirit Medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicinestories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there, and I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning, 
and behind the scenes stuff and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.